Hello and welcome to Ear Read This. My name's Ash and this week I'm talking about The Golden Ass by Apuleius. Also known as the Metamorphoses, The Golden Ass was composed sometime in the late 2nd century AD and is the only surviving complete Latin novel from the classical period. I say novel, but it of course predates the term. During this period in the Roman Empire, literary works were published in the form of a volumen, a glued-together scroll of fragile papyrus sheets, written in a substance made from ash, dark resin, or cuttlefish ink. As Apuleius describes his own tools in his preface, this Egyptian paper, written with a subtle pen of nilotic reeds. He calls the work a medley of stories, a Milesian tale, a term used to describe a series of stories tied together in a first-person account of a character's travels, usually marked with raunchy, bawdy humour. The name comes from a set of Greek stories written by Aristides four centuries before, which were all set in Miletus. Written in the form of a confessional memoir, our narrator of The Golden Ass is Lucius of Corinth, who recounts how, after dabbling in magic, he is metamorphosed into an ass. Unable to reassume his human form, he is then tossed on a sea of troubles throughout a landscape bristling with bandits, witches, bears, and the Greco-Roman gods. The deep impression left by the golden ass on the easy chair of literature is hard to overstate. It was read by such luminaries as St. Augustine and Geoffrey of Monmouth. In the mid-16th century, the Italian poet Agnolo Ferenzola released an ad adaptation of the golden ass for free that became the most widely read book in Western Europe. After that, there was no stopping it. Wherever you look, there is no shaking that ass. It clip-clops through Don Quixote and the Decameron, crops up in the work of La Fontaine and Machiavelli, and in 1566, it is first published into English by William Adlington, and immediately ransacked to furnish the playhouses of London. Hoofing open the stable of English poetry, the ass sachets through Milton, Spencer, Marlowe, Sidney, and, of course, Shakespeare who wrote his own version of a man transformed into an ass, but evidently absorbed much more of Apuleius than his central metamorphosis. There are Apulean motifs where you might least expect them, in the tragedies of Othello and Hamlet. The golden ass even features Mandragora, a soporific potion that mimics the state of death. Like Shakespeare, Apuleius had a talent for raiding, taking what he liked and improving on it. His golden ass may be based on a short work accredited to Lucian, entitled Lucius or the Ass. And there are similar marks of tra transcribing errors that we have seen in Shakespeare, signifying a writer working at speed, overlooking the trivial factual details in the thrall of adaptation and creation. Apuleius grafts seas onto landlocked countries. His characters are daughters in one paragraph and stepdaughters in the next. The novel goes, in its puckish way, high and low, with that most novelly of occupations, the fate of the soul, tossed in with the oats of Chaucerian burlesque. Read this novel if you like your identity quests hose-piped with diarrhoea, philosophy mixed with filth, and toga parties to be less I Claudius and more Animal House. The book is not only a hoot, but it also pulls together two of our current strands on Ear Read This, three if we count the Shakespearean connection. Not only is it obviously another metamorphosis, it is also widely cited as a model for the picaresque novel, which myself and Adam, like a mad knight and his regional assistant, have been tilting at over the last few weeks. It is a messy, debauched, yet spiritual tale, its body much like that of the animal in its title, shaggy and base, yet derived from a noble frame. Now I should say for the record that the translation I have chiefly drawn upon and will quote from and enjoyed so much is the 1994 translation by P.G. Walsh, so I recommend that if you like what you hear, read that one. With different translators from different times and sensibilities, the nature of the beast changes, and while the curve of the ass remains the same, beloved freckles come and go. 
Some asses will always be drier than others. What is quite clear from translations throughout history is that the language of the original ass was peculiar, witty and extravagant. Even the most tightly clenched rendering can't stop a little whiff of that squeaking through. So what do we know of its original author, Apuleius? He was born in the mid-120s AD in Madaurus, a formerly Numidian town in Algeria, colonised by the Romans a generation before his birth. Here, above the Majurda Valley, is where he grew up, received his first education before moving on to study in Athens, Carthage and Rome. Latin was the official language of the colony, but Apuleius would likely have also known Punic as well as Greek. Translators of the Golden Ass have suggested that the novel's esoteric vernacular may well owe something to the author being brought up with several languages. He himself apologises for his own Latin in his introduction. Behold, I first crave and beg your pardon, lest I should happen to displease or offend any of you by the rude and rustic utterance of this strange and foreign language. This is, knowing what little there is to know of the character of Apuleius, quite likely false modesty, but it places him definitively in a multilingual world. A multilingual and also polytheistic world. Christianity was far from dominant, and Apuleius himself became a sworn devotee to Isis, the goddess who granted safe passage to the afterlife, and who in Egyptian iconography is the one with a chair on her head. The tribulations of Lucius and the Golden Ass are ended after a vision of Isis, and the remainder of the novel is an elaborate description of the initiation rites Lucius undertakes in order to become a devotee to the goddess. These rites, known as the Mysteries of Isis, are mentioned throughout classical literature, but the Golden Ass is the only source containing a detailed description of them. When Apuleius was about 30 years old, he decided to travel to Egypt, presumably following his Isaac devotion. However, en route, he fell ill and to recuperate stayed with friends in what is now modern-day Tripoli. Here follows a bizarre story in the life of this author. So a friend of Apuleius puts him up in his family home, where his mother also resides. Despite the fact that he later claimed that she was no looker and completely avoided mentioning her wealth, Apuleius starts an affair with the mother of his friend, who was both widowed and rich. When the friend of Apuleius wished himself to marry, the father of the bride took issue with the affair. Issue enough to have Apuleius indicted on charges of magic, the theory being that Apuleius was a sorcerer who had duped the widow with love potions. If it wasn't bad enough that sorcery was punishable by death, the son of the widow suddenly died, and Apuleius was also charged with murder. As evidence, the accusers pointed out that Apuleius had the remains of animals and a mirror in his possession, both of which were considered witchy belongings. Apuleius argued that the animal specimens owed to his curiosity in anatomy, and presenting himself before the proconsul in around 158 AD, defended himself with style and sarcasm. His speech, which got him acquitted, survives, and far from containing any of the panicked desperation of a man facing execution, it is a mocking indictment of the stupidity of his accusers. In it, Apuleius flaunts his higher learning, tells his accuser he should read more, though doubts he could learn to appreciate literature at his age, quotes Homer in the Greek, and poetry not just by Plato, but also himself. He admits to dissecting fish, and that he possessed a mirror, and that he also from time to time looked in it, but far from chanting spells over quivering entrails, he says, Is it a crime to be acquainted with one's own likeness, and to carry it with one wherever one goes, ready to hand within the compass of a small mirror, instead of keeping it hidden away in some one place? Are you ignorant of the fact that there is nothing more pleasing for a man to look upon his own image? Despite his acquittal and the obvious popularity of his speech evidenced by its survival, the idea of Apuleius as a magician seems to have lingered. The Golden Ass, as we shall find out, has been regarded 
as a piece of anti-Christian polemic, and in the 4th and 5th centuries, as Christians were trying to purge paganism, they regarded the miracles of Apuleius as real and condemned him as an antichrist. Despite their efforts to dismantle his reputation, Apuleius survived, and his legacy is not solely that of a proto-novelist, but also a poet, philosopher and sophist, a vocal advocate of Plato and a celebrated orator. The assured voice of Lucius can't help but inform the picture already emerging of Apuleius himself, that of an intelligent and cocky man of letters, a Latinate African who wrote with originality and verve. William Adlington, author of the 1566 translation, which was pounced upon by the Elizabethans, gives a physical description of Apuleius, saying that he had an high and comely stature, grey-eyed, his hair yellow, and a beautiful personage. This would be somewhat more convincing if Adlington wasn't writing more than a millennium after Apuleius lived, and if the description didn't come from a self-portrait the author wrote himself. One tries not to be overly biographical in approaching literature. It is usually the novelist's job to disappear, and the reader's job to respect that. But Apuleius deliberately included several moments drawn from his own life. Both he and Lucius have a brush with witchcraft, come to worship Isis, and have statues erected in their honour. This is not an author who's coy about writing what he knows. It is interesting to note that, like some of the other works we've discussed with picaresque incl inclinations, like the Pickwick Papers, 2000 Leagues Under the Sea, and the Scottish tour of Boswell and Johnson, Apuleius was living in times of prosperity. While Dickens was yet to be a success and was greatly concerned with the living conditions of the poor in London, the British Empire was an all-powerful global force following the defeat of Napoleon. The prosperity of Verne's France is perhaps less important than the empire of technology that was opening up before his widening eyes, and as for Boswell and Johnson, their saunter through Scotland, as our episode on it attests, is a plotted course between ample meals and fireside conversations. In the time of Apuleius, the Roman state was at the height of its powers under the rule of the five good emperors. You may still on occasion be charged with magic and murder, but this remained a world of territorial and intellectual expansion, one that a man like Apuleius would want to sally through at a gallop. The first point on which to recommend the Golden Ass is that far from being an archaic and cryptic relic, one for the scholars, it is a breezily written, jaunty novel that opens conversationally. What I should like to do is to weave together different tales in this Milesian mode of storytelling and to stroke your approving ears with some elegant whispers. What follows is exactly that, a series of tales told with the apparent chief intention to amuse. The stories of what happens to Lucius are themselves full of stories being told by characters he meets. There is a care and gratitude for coming across a new story, whether it is told over a campfire by your bandit captors or by a raving old hag. More than once, Lucius bemoans his lack of a pen to write some of these heard stories down, forgetting in his rapture that he is presently facing a gruesome death and besides has hooves rather than any hands to write with. The second part of his promise is also delivered on, that however gossipy and sensational the stories are, however much they smack of schoolboy smut, they are indeed weaved together and part of a larger scheme. Apuleius makes sure that every apparent digression is in fact a counterpoint or thematic riff on the preoccupations of the central narrative, whilst never straying from the spirit expressed by Lucius in the novel's opening. This comes after he has heard the first of many stories in his travels, and as he journeys on the road to Thessaly. I consider nothing impossible, says Lucius, for I believe that people undergo all that their fates decree, 
My view is that you and I and the whole world experience many strange, almost impossible happenings which lose their credibility when recounted to one who is unaware of them. Not only do I believe our friend, indeed I do, but I am most grateful to him for distracting us with such an amusing and elegant tale, so that I have completed this rough and extensive lap of my journey without strain or boredom. I suspect that my mount, too, is grateful for the, f- the favour, since I have not tired him out and have ridden all the way to the city gate, not on his back, but on my ears. Far from being, as A.S.L. Farquharson had it, a mere adventure story, a kind of horrid nightmare with stories of the Decameron kind, but infinitely worse told, right at the beginning of The Golden Ass, we have an explicit manifesto and a nifty, ironic wink. Here is Lucius, pre-transformation, delighting in a story well told, and as a consequence, treating his steed with kindness. Apuleius demonstrates elsewhere a playful confidence. Lucius hears a prophecy from someone that, at one time my fame would blossom considerably, and at another I would be the subject of a lengthy story, an unbelievable story spread over several books. A great deal of the surviving literature we have from the time of Apuleius was intended to be oral, poems to be performed, speeches and lectures and so on. As you may have noticed, Apuleius promises to titillate our ears rather than our minds, but it is most significant that at several junctures in the novel he calls us reader. According to Thomas Hagg, his style is largely built on acoustic effects, rhymes, assonances, alliteration. As a practising sophist, he naturally used the tricks of his trade even when writing a novel. Nor should we forget that the ancient reader usually read aloud, even in private. In that sense, all literature was oral. The grandiose sarcasm in Apuleius's defence at his trial is on show throughout The Golden Ass. Its most famous internal story begins, In a certain city there lived a king and queen with three notably beautiful daughters. The elder ones were very attractive, yet praise appropriate to humans was thought sufficient for their fame. But the beauty of the youngest girl... He also has a wonderful sense of the absurd, as demonstrated in this list of omens. The egg was premature, and to be cause of the greatest anxiety, for she did not lay it in the form familiar to us. It was a fully grown chicken, with feathers, claws, eyes. It was even cheeping, and at once began to shadow its mother. But a similar, much more sinister portent then appeared, such as would rightly cause any person to shudder. Under the very table which bore the remains of the supper, the earth yawned open, and from its depths gushed a towering fountain of blood. Great showers of drops flew out of it and spattered the table with gore. Then at the very moment when the company was stupefied with astonishment and terror at these warnings from heaven, a servant came running in from the wine cellar to report that the wine, which had earlier been apportioned out after fermenting, was bubbling up again with boiling heat in all the casks, exactly as if a roaring fire had been lit beneath them. In the meantime, a weasel was also seen dragging a dead snake in its mouth out into the open, and a green frog leapt out of the mouth of a sheepdog. The idea that a dog sicking up a frog would be noticed whilst blood spewed from the earth is a typically ridiculous bit. And Apuleius revels in swapping between elements of high and low, burlesque and tragedy. Far from following the doctrine, show don't tell, that perpetually retold bit of creative writing fluff, Apuleius takes time to savour telling us exactly what to expect. You should know, gentle reader, that you are now to read a tragedy and no mere anecdote. You are to rise from the comic sock to the tragic buskin. Here the mirror-owning orator takes a moment to change costume between the low, raggedy shoe of the comic actor to the tall boot of the tragic star. The learning he flaunted at his trial is evidenced in the ass also, as Sarah Rutledge Stevenson points out. He uses some rare, almost obsolete words in his vocabulary, and some that are queer and rakish. 
His style is not conventional, but a fittingly mystifying medium for the mystifying tales he meant to tell. Prose that is as tumultuous, amusing and lavish seems to bear the mark of youth and the spring of an early talent, though it seems likely that Apuleius wrote the novel after the events of his trial, meaning he would be at least in his mid-thirties. Throughout, the novel surprises in its wit and what Jack Lindsay calls its surprising air of modernity, which sets it abreast of each age that reads it. The mocking scepticism of the author is merged with a deep and reverential love of life, and his odd style is so closely linked with his love, his eager curiosity, that it refuses to seem precious or obscure. Nasty things are funny, says Charles Highway, the narrator of the Rachel Papers. The nastier a thing is, the funnier it gets. These certainly seem to be sentiments shared by Apuleius, who submits his high-minded narrator to as much low, humiliating toilet humour as he can think of. The degenerate world that Lucius is blithely trotting into is forewarned at the very beginning of the novel, in a story told by Aristomenes on the way to Thessaly. He recounts to Lucius how he discovered an old friend, Socrates, looking bedraggled and deranged and claiming to have been cursed by a witch. That night, after Aristomenes has secured lodgings for himself and his crumpled friend, they are indeed visited by two witches, who in the process of getting their revenge on Socrates, transform Aristomenes into a tortoise. We hear from the tortoise's own mouth a support of Charles Highway's principle from the days of antiquity. At that moment I recognise that certain feelings naturally give birth to their opposites, for just as tears often flow as the result of joy, so even at the moment of extreme fear I could not restrain my laughter at being transformed from Aristomenes into a tortoise. He isn't laughing for long, however. The witches explode into the apartment, destroy it, cut out Socrates' heart, replacing it with a sponge, and before leaving they take turns to crouch over the tortoise Aristomenes and void their bladders on him. An idiot's curiosity made me seek out this particular section in the 1566 William Adlington translation, and it was well worth it. They strid over me and clapped their buttocks over my face and all bepissed me until I was wringing wet. Nastiness claps its buttocks over almost every book in the Golden Ass, and an appreciation of Roman toilet humour is probably required to stomach it. It's not just bewitched bepiss fests, but also the nastiness in the violence of the Golden Ass, something else it shares with picaresque novels, particularly Don Quixote. The sheer quantity of beatings, torturings and sticky ends that proliferate the novel, characters being crushed, torched and torn apart, with such abandon, such vim and slapstick panache, can't help but colour the world of this novel as one that places a very low price on life. Hardly surprising, really, given that the mortals of the story are subject to the whims and jealousies of the impulsive gods. These are not gods that move in mysterious ways, but readily recognisable human ways. Ways that influence the distinctly nasty and capricious system of judgment that runs throughout the story. There is reference to an erring lover transformed into a beaver, explained as follows. Why a beaver? Because that animal, in fear of captivity, escapes its pursuers by biting off its own genitals, and she wanted the same fate to befall him. It was indeed believed that a pursued beaver castrates itself, not as a way of ditching freight and picking up speed, but rather because it knew that what most hunters were after were the, was the pricey oil castorium, which was wrongly believed to be stored in its balls. The ancients here granted the beaver a familiarity with market prices that was probably quite beyond it. However, the belief persisted, and in the 12th century there is an unbelievable account by a Welshman confirming that under duress, the beaver will ransom his body by the sacrifice of his testicles. Not only that, says Gerald the Welshman, but to ensure the hunter is aware of the new eunuch, 
the beaver will then seek higher ground in full view of its pursuer, whereupon it will raise one of its hind legs to announce its decision to unicate himself. <laughs> but enough about bulls and beavers, let's circle back round to the ass. As I mentioned in the Midsummer Night's Dream episode, that the classical world regarded the ass as the most virile and well-endowed quadruped going, as Lucius is quick to note during his own metamorphosis. It's worth mentioning that he's expecting to be transformed into an owl. I then flaps my arms up and down, imitating the movements of a bird. But no down and no sign of feathers appeared. Instead, the hair on my body was becoming coarse bristles, and my tender skin was hardening into hide. There were no longer five fingers at the extremities of my hands, for each was compressed into one hoof. From the base of my spine protruded an enormous tail. My face became misshapen, my mouth widened, my nostrils flared open, my lips became pendulous, and my ears huge and bristly. The sole consolation I could see in this wretched transformation was the swelling of my penis. If you listen to the episode on Kafka's metamorphosis, you might recall that peculiar, errant thought that Gregor has in the most distressing of circumstances. Even as he begins to realise the extent of his transformation, he briefly suspects that a final improvement in his condition is imminent. You could say that this, along with Lucius being undismayed rather than aghast at his engorged penis, is simply two characters who can't fail to see the bright side, or an example of the phenomenon Aristomenes described, feelings inappropriate to the situation. Or perhaps it is the writer simply letting slip his own imaginative excitement at the possibilities of another form. Prefiguring Titania, adoring Bottom, both the Golden Ass and the text generally thought to have come before it, Lucius or the Ass, feature a woman pretty much demanding of Lucius as an ass a role in the hay. In the Greek version, a night of bestial bliss leads to love. However, when Lucius is restored to his natural shape, the woman no longer finds him attractive and dumps him. The Greeks well knew that when the beast is restored to a prince, beauty's response might not, in fact, be all smiles and roses. In our version, the dumping is ditched in favour of the Isis section, and the sex scene itself is endowed with a throbbing anxiety and more than a little reluctance. For a character who has behaved fairly scurriously, with a robust contempt for women, and having been a young man now starved of any affection for the entire time he has been an ass... A sexually active young man at that, reduced to stealthily licking a maiden's feet under the cover of itching his flanks. He now does a remarkable amount of nervous whinnying about getting his end away. He takes pains to say how drunk he got in order to go through with it, before worriedly mounting the woman as he imagines the execution he will receive once he inevitably splits her in half. There is an almost cartoonish misogyny throughout The Golden Ass, a palpable fear of libidinous women and the classic binary filing system misogynists have, Whores, hags and witches in one corner, chaste angels in the other, no grey area. One quite minor character is openly described as the worst woman in the world, and that isn't the one who cuts out a sleeping man's heart and pisses on a tortoise. In a series of tales about straying wives, one particular punishment leaps out as coming from a brain that has long stewed on the perfect way of revenging oneself on a cheating wife. Catching the pair in flagrante... The husband, calmly and without emotion, locks the wife in one room, escorts her lover to another, and rapes him. Most damningly of all, perhaps, is the eventual devotion to Isis. One of the classic symptoms of a misogynist is the deifying of one woman and the casting off of all others. Despite the inevitable recollection of Apuleius swearing he never found the widow attractive, there is some distance between the misogyny of Lucius and that of his author. At one point, in which he is greatly mistaken about the character of a particular woman, Lucius tells us that the whole female sex and its morals lay perilously poised on the judgment of an ass. 
and his treatment of the servant girl Fotis, who does nothing but try to assist Lucius, is shown to be quite unfair. Not to mention the sex scene between ass and woman itself, in which Lucius, for all his spectacular endowment, has very much not got the upper hand. So given his previous attitudes to women, it is an odd section that seems out of tone with the rest of the novel, and to get to the bottom of it, we need to look a little more at the character of the beast and the nature of Lucius himself. Perhaps I shouldn't sound so surprised at an apparent contradiction in Lucius, as this is one of the first insights into his character he gives. Do tell me all about it. I am not inquisitive, but am the type which likes to know about everything, or at least about most things. It is his curiosity that gets him into trouble in the first place, as the priest of Isis later tells him. In the green years of youth, you tumbled on the slippery slope into slavish pleasures and gained the ill-omened reward of your unhappy curiosity. But surely the lesson of Lucius can't be as asinine as curiosity killed the cat. This would hardly be in keeping with the same author whose innocent curiosity and anatomy led him to be accused of magic and murder. While there is plenty of self-pity from Lucius at what has befallen him, there is little in the way of contrition or renunciation. He is much more likely to curse Fotis, the servant girl whose bungled alchemy led him to being metamorphosed into an ass rather than the intended owl, than he is to regret his asking her assistance in the first place. That was a good sentence. There is no powerful moral confrontation, no Ebenezer Scrooge moment of wailing and repenting over the vision of his own grave, the only revelation and renunciation comes after he is transformed back into a human and begins undertaking the mysteries of Isis. Granted, he directs a prayer to her beforehand, but apart from praising Isis, he only asks that he is either restored to his human form or if he has in some way offended a deity, put out of his misery and killed. This follows shortly after the sex scene I described and marks a distinct change in Lucius's character. Beforehand, he has been entertainingly self-serving, preoccupied with the immediate concerns of food, lodgings and safety. Before his transformation, we have seen Lucius as a smooth operator, interested in self-promotion and, and getting his way with a great sense of theatricality. This is him pepping himself up before seducing Fotis. Last night, when you retired to sleep, she genially escorted you to your room, fussed over you in getting you to your bed, tucked you in quite affectionately, kissed your forehead, and showed by her face her unwillingness to leave. In fact, she kept halting and looking back. So even though it has its hazards, Fotis must be your target. The best of luck in your endeavours. We've also seen the fragility of his self-esteem and the pale, trembling underbelly of his pride. In a sequence that can't fail to recall the author's own life, Lucius finds himself the butt of an elaborate joke organised by a whole town. He is falsely accused of murder, brought before trial, threatened with execution, until the townspeople finally crack up and guffaw at him. Unbeknownst to Lucius, it is local habit to hold a festival of laughter, and he was this year's unsuspecting stooge. To a young man who prides himself on elegance and learning, nothing could be more insulting, and it's fair to say Lucius fails to see the funny side. Beyond the trial's obvious resonances with Kafka, the whole sequence recalls the thoughts of Kundera as quoted in our Metamorphosis episode, a joke is only a joke if you're outside of it. And there are several jokes at the expense of Lucius. One of the most brutally funny sequences, my personal favourite, I think is worth quoting in full. Lucius as an ass has been captured, along with some other animals, by some bandits, and forced to carry their belongings and travel with them in their caravan. In order to make a bid for his freedom, he decides to fake a collapse. I reasoned that in my utter exhaustion and weakness, I deserved a compassionate discharge, 
But this splendid plan was nipped in the bud by the most grievous misfortune, for the other ass guessed and forestalled my intention. He at once collapsed, baggage and all, with feigned exhaustion. Feigned. Lucius seems here to have forgotten that not all asses were once human, and much like beavers, not being au fait with the market price of castor oil, it's unlikely that a normal ass would be capable of deception. This recalls Nabokov's description of the story of Gregor Samsa being the tale of a man's instincts mingling with his newfound insect ones. Only this time, Lucius hasn't so much acquired the instincts of an ass, but rather brought his human ones through with him and projected them onto his fellow beasts. His opinions alter somewhat once his captors resolve what to do with his fallen companion. Finally, the bandits grew weary and abandoned hope of him. They then drew a sword, cut his hamstrings right through, dragged him a little way off the road and hurled him, still breathing, over the, to over the top of the cliff, headlong into the nearest valley below. As I reflected on the fate of my wretched comrade-in-arms, I decided to renounce guile and deceit and show myself a good ass to my masters. Rather than acquiring the biological instincts of an ass, Lucius is condemned to pretend to be one, as his human cunning would land him in trouble. This chastening and bringing low of a high-minded young man could be seen as a humbling following a golden childhood, but Apuleius is after a bit more than that. No sooner has Lucius resolved to be as ass-like as possible in order to get along, he overhears a series of grim tales the bandits share, recalling the grisly ends of their fallen comrades. The sequence of inglorious downfalls of various would-be bandit heroes is one of the funniest sections in the book, and would seem to be merely intended to amuse if it wasn't for one story in particular. In a comic spin on the Trojan horse story, one of the bandits recalls a fallen brother who, as a part of a dastardly scheme, decided to skin a dead bear and wear the pelt. Thus disguised, he would scare off their targets and reap the rewards. The plan backfires, and the supposed bear is butchered to death. The bandit telling the story emotionally recounts how nobly committed to character his comrade was, never once crying for help, and dying very much in the manner of a bear. Coming so soon on the heels of Lucius's own decision to play down the fact of his being human, this is a clear warning against the folly of masking one tr one's true self. The true test of Lucius's metamorphosis will be hanging on to the part of him that is still human. But the metamorphosis of Lucius isn't the only one in the story. It's alternate, perhaps correct. An original title is, like the metamorphoses of Ovid, plural. Sarah Rutledge Stevenson lists two more explicit metamorphoses beyond that of Lucius, but there are arguably far more. Characters' true identities are disguised on several occasions, and the imagery constantly broils with transformations of one kind or another. At one point, a gang of villains considers how to dispatch their two hostages, a kidnapped girl and our long-suffering Lucius. After entertaining several gruesome methods of execution, they decide on the worst of all. They will gut Lucius and sew the girl inside him, leaving her head exposed to the sun and scavengers. This hideous image, rich with the irony of placing a person inside an animal already occupied by a person, also seems to represent a kind of visceral terminus of metamorphoses in general, recalling the Cronenbergian image of the half-man, half-fly, a crime against nature, an atrocity. And a connection to the stories of Ovid's metamorphoses is made very early on, when Lucius contemplates a statue of Acteon, the hunter metamorphosed into a stag and torn apart by his own hounds for the crime of curiously sneaking a peek at the bathing goddess Diana. But the highest feat of craftsmanship achieved by that genius of a sculptor was that the hounds were rearing breast high and their hind legs were breaking while their forelegs were in rapid motion. Lucius, perhaps prompted by the story of Aristomenes, begins to see a hidden life in everything. I did not believe that anything which I gazed on in the city was merely what it was, but that every single object had been transformed into a different shape by some muttered and deadly incantation. 
I thought that the stones which caused me to trip were petrified persons, that the birds which I could hear were feathered humans, that the trees enclosing the city limits were people who had likewise sprouted foliage, that the waters issuing from the fountains were issuing from human bodies. This strikingly horrifying image seems apocalyptic, suggesting a kind of species cannibalism, and is the first indication that for all Lucius's confidence and curiosity, he intuits that not all is well with the world. Something is lacking. P.G. Walsh has said that the novel itself undergoes a metamorphosis from comic romance to moral fable and religious apologia. Taking his cue from other Greek sources, Apuleius wanted more than to entertain, he wanted to instruct, and he did so by pinching another facet of Greek literature, as Walsh goes on to explain. The rescue of Lucius from his plight through the acknowledgement of the saving power of Isis is visualised as having been inspired by similar denouements in the Greek romances, where hapless lovers are similarly delivered from their privations by the intervention of a kindly deity. Apuleius's entire romance is thus envisaged as literary entertainment in which Apuleius merges the disparate Greek genres of the comic short story and the extended ideal romance into a novel unity for the pleasurable relaxation of his readers. So unlike the shorter Greek version, Lucius will end his tribulations with a religious awakening. And here he has a metamorphosis between two writers, becoming not an ass, but a pantomime horse with two authors inside him, Lucian being the breaking hind legs and Apuleius the forelegs in rapid motion, reaching forward as if to bridge a chasm. And indeed, the golden ass has a crack in the middle. The longest and most famous digression from the central narrative comes in the form of the story of Cupid and Psyche. Arguably the most influential part of the whole book, the tale was the primary interest of many of the poets and writers I listed at the beginning of the episode, but also inspired art by Raphael, Velázquez, Titian, Caravaggio, and many others. Psyche is that youngest daughter of the quote I made earlier, so beautiful that she causes Venus herself to become jealous. Things get worse for Psyche when she becomes the wife of Cupid, Venus's son. Once Venus discovers this, Psyche is put through various degrading and punishing trials before finally reuniting with her husband. The resonance with Lucius's own sufferings is sharp. Psyche has only done what is human, having fallen in love with love, and it is right that she is rendered rather flatly against the envious Venus, and to use the word of Walsh, schizoid Cupid. There is nobility in accepting her fate with stoicism, performing what is asked of her, and remaining true to her desires. She doesn't play the ass, or transform, or renounce her past life, because she has committed no crime. Psyche, the soul, bears out comparison with the soul of Lucius, Tossed on a sea of troubles, forced to bear the unsteady assaults and seesawing changes his fortunes bring, finding in the platonist shedding of bodily attachments his true calling. True calling for Lucius comes in the form of Isis, though some critics have suggested that his entire journey is symbolic of the adoption and then later renunciation of Christian beliefs. Some Africans, in the time of Apuleius, believed that Christians actually worshipped an ass, and depictions in the amphitheatre of a Christian god would, be, would come equipped with ass's ears and a hoof, and would carry the inscription, the god of Christians, offspring of an ass. However, I find it unlikely that Apuleius would be coy about directly naming Christians as his targets for ridicule in a time when they were a disliked minority, and I suspect the body of the ass is not meant to be a single symbol, but rather the comic clothing of an author's serious intention. I'm running out of time and there are still various delights and points of interest that I haven't managed to fit in. There is the brief cameo of Pan, comic comparisons between Lucius and Pegasus, many dreams of ravishment recalling not only Titania and Bottom but also direct references to the copulation with a bull that brought forth the Minotaur, 
Apuleius gives Kafka a run for his money with the vast quantity of torturing he dreams up. Some of the sufferings of Lucius would, in another time, be called sadomasochistic, or kinkier than the spine of a packhorse. Those wicked sisters of Psyche, who, knowing only that her husband is wealthy, become jealous of her. They complain that their own husbands are bald and have the virility of an infant, little knowing that Psyche's husband is, of course, Cupid. There's clever ironies like that, and more earthy humour, such as the incidences of explosive and weaponized diarrhoea that Lucius lets rip at his foes, following his new diet of raw vegetables. Just to end on a bum note, here's the rendering of one of them in the 1566 William Adlington version. He lets rip with such force, he says, that I all besprinkled their faces with my liquid dung. So, ear read the golden ass. And if you do, let us know what you think by finding us on social media. We are ear read this on all of them. Or emailing earreadthis at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a nice review and check out the other podcasts. I am trying very slowly to cleave to a pattern of themes, and there'll be more metamorphoses of one kind or another on the way. My soul would sing of metamorphoses, said Ovid. Now I am ready to tell how bodies are changed into other bodies, said Ted Hughes. And I'll leave you with a similar promise made by Apuleius. I want you to feel wonder at the transformations of men's shapes and destinies into alien forms and their reversion by a chain of interconnection to their own. So let me begin. Thank you for listening. And until next time, happy reading. <laughs>